Hi, I'm Jill Schlesinger, host of Better Off. Is there a case for a universal basic income? Today on the podcast, I'm talking to someone who says there is more than a case. There is a need for it. Basic income, you can see it as venture capital for the people. It's an investment that pays for itself. We are paying through the nose right now in terms of higher healthcare spending, higher dropout rates, more crime. Poverty is incredibly expensive. And we've got a lot of evidence that if you just get people out of poverty, better for everyone. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Now, remember, part of the reason we love doing this show is that we want to introduce concepts that you may not hear about in your normal day-to-day existence. This is not just about your own financial life, but it's about big concepts as well. I ran across a really interesting guy. His name is Rutger Bregman. He wrote a book called Utopia for Realists. This is the case for a universal basic income, open borders, and a 15-hour work week. The reason why I found this so fascinating is I had seen his TED Talk, but I also really began to wonder... Well, what does happen if robots take away all these jobs? What are we going to do with these millions of people who are kind of shut out of the economy? And is that going to happen? And what's going to go on? And I got really kind of uptight about it. So I thought I would actually find someone who's an expert. The problem is that he uh, lives overseas and we had to do this by Skype. So it's not going to sound quite as crystal clear as you're used to. But check this out. It's a fascinating interview. Rutger Bregman. Again, the book is called Utopia for Realists. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. I am so delighted to welcome author, journalist, star of the TED stage, Rutger Bregman. He's got a new book called Utopia for Realists. Rutger, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I guess that I should also say you're a historian. I mean, you're sort of like a historian. You're you like almost a, a lay economist. It's all beautiful. It all comes together. So before we get started into your book, Utopia for Realists, I'd love to ask you one question. It's my icebreaker. Mm-hmm. I ask this at all the cocktail parties. <laughs> what is the best financial decision you have made in your very young life so far? Uh, oh, it's probably very cliche, but I bought a house like Three years ago when the housing market in the Netherlands was like completely down and now it's going totally up again. So, And where yeah. where in the Netherlands are you? I had an amazing trip to Amsterdam. I just want to say that I live in Utrecht and it's a little bit to the south of Amsterdam. Fabulous. Yeah. OK, so I want to begin the interview about your book, Utopia for Realists by mm-hmm. pointing out something that you write about in your introduction, which is basically Life today, wherever you are, is probably better than it has been at any other time in history. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So many people get their worldview from watching the news nowadays, right? And the problem with the news is that it's all about exceptions. It's about the things go, that go wrong mainly. So about corruption and violence and terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if you watch a lot of the news and you keep hearing about all these exceptions, at the, at the end of the day, you know exactly how the world doesn't work. So what I try to do in the first chapter of my book is zoom out a little and look at you know the long-term trends. And they're quite astonishing, actually. And if, I think if historians will look back on our age, they'll 
they'll wonder about all those people who are pessimistic about the future while they were actually living in the, the biggest age of progress that ever happened. For example, if you look at something like the decline of global poverty, 40, 50% declines in the past 20, 30 years, child mortality is going down by 50% since 1990. You know, these are incredible big steps, and but it's never in the news. You know, there's never a headline that says child mortality declined today by 0.000000001%, mm. you know, because it happens every single day. So yeah, that's, that's where I start the book, is that the problem today is not that we don't have it good. It's that we have no big new vision of where we want to go next. I, I love this phrase that you have that, you know, for most of the pace of history, we mm -hmm. were poor, hungry, dirty, afraid, stupid, sick. But why is it in these advanced democracies that mm -hmm. we hear people saying life stinks? I want to go back to a, quote, better mm -hmm. time. What are they what are they saying there? That's a really good question. So I think just imagine that you're standing on top of a mountain and you made a very long journey to get there. And um, when you're there, you can do two things. You can look ahead towards the next mountain you want to climb and be optimistic and excited about that. Or you can start looking down and be very afraid, you know, because it's, it's a long way down and you can fall very hard. And that's basically what we're doing right now. So because we have no new vision of where we want to go next, we have no new utopian idea. I, I, I really like to point out in my book is that every milestone of civilization, uh, the end of slavery, democracy, equal rights for men and women, you know, it was all utopian fantasy once. But we, we don't have that anymore. We don't have an idea of where we want to go apart from, you know, a little bit extra economic growth or the new iPhone, but that's about it. So if you look back in the past, who frames that utopian vision? In other words, is it a politician that has done that in the past? Who, who mm -hmm. usually frames that? I think that politicians are often at the end of the line. So if everyone knows that a new idea is might, might start to become reality, only then politicians will start to notice. I mean, there are a few exceptions, but they are often at the end of the line. So if I can just give the example of one of the ideas in my book, which is universal basic income, giving everyone free money to completely eradicate poverty. I started writing about that just five years ago, and uh, almost no one knew what it even was uh, back then in the Netherlands. And now there are 20 cities that want to experiment with it. And that really happened bottom up at the local level. People started talking about it, say, oh, can we do an experiment, et cetera, et cetera. And it's only now that politicians on the national level are getting interested. I think that's how it often works. So it, it starts with someone who is dismissed as crazy and realistic, irresponsible. And then people start taking notice and what, what was once unrealistic becomes inevitable. Okay, I want to talk, focus in on universal basic income because I have been captivated by this concept over the last couple mm -hmm. of years. And I didn't hear about it from you first, but I've been thinking a lot about it. And, and I would love it if you could explain that London experiment that we saw right around the financial crisis or right after, yeah. right? It was in 2009. Yeah. yeah, this is a fascinating experiment. So what happened is it was an experiment in the city, the financial district, and they did it with 13 homeless men who had been living on the street for a long time, some of them for 40 years. And these were really regarded as hopeless cases. It was very exp expensive as well. You know, you should you should understand that someone living on the street may cost the community like 50,000 or a hundred thousand dollars or pounds a year in terms of healthcare costs, you know, judicial costs, police costs, etc. So it was really time to try something new. And there, this organization just decided, well, let's just give them money. 
£3,000 and let's see what happens. Uh, we give them the money and they can decide for themselves what to do with it. We trust them to, to make their own decisions. But a year after the experiment, seven out of 13 of the men had a roof above their head. Two more had applied for housing and um, they had saved money by a factor of about seven or something like that. So the project cost about £50,000 and normally it would cost at least £400,000. So even the economists, you know, not exactly a left-wing uh, paper, even the economists wrote the best way to spend money on the homeless might be just to give it to them. Okay, so tell me about some other experiments because it's 13 people and then I yeah. know that people are going to be hearing this like say, okay, well, there's these 13 guys in London and, and they're going to dismiss it. They're going to poo-poo it. Anything, exactly. anything bigger that you can point to around basic income and how it's played out in an experiment? Yeah, there have actually been dozens of experiments and much larger than, than this one around the globe. So the most fascinating experiment probably happened in the 70s in a, a small town called Dauphin in Canada. And what they did there is they, they basically eradicated poverty. So everyone who fell below the poverty line had their income immediately topped up unconditionally. Um, and that experiment went on for four years. Uh, but then a new government was voted into power and the new Canadian cabinet saw a little point to the expensive experiment. And the researchers had to pack their files all away in about 2,000 boxes. It was only 25 years later that a Canadian professor found the records, did the analysis, and discovered that it had been a huge success. So the healthcare costs went down by 8.5%. Kids performed much better in school. Domestic violence incidents were down. Mental health complaints were down. And most importantly, people didn't work any less. That's that's often the biggest objection that people have. You know, have you know, people will be lazy or something like that. But time and time again, when we actually experiment with basic income, that's not what happens. Most people want to do something with their lives. We just have to give them the means to get up. It's sort of a fascinating thing because I can hear um, the people listening and saying mm -hmm. to themselves, but, you know, well, we, we have to give people, why would we give people something for nothing? And, I, and it harkens back to all the welfare reform that we saw in the U.S., which was always linked to work. Like, you've got to do something mm -hmm. to get work. And, you know, oh, you're lazy if you don't work. Or if you're on welfare, you're lazy. I, actually, it's a real judgment, right? So how yeah. can we shift out of that? I think we got to do two things to change the conversation. And the first thing is to see this as an investment. So basic income, you can see it as venture capital for the people. It's an investment that pays for itself. We are paying through the nose right now in terms of higher healthcare spending, higher dropout rates, more crime for poverty. You know, poverty is incredibly expensive. It's if, if you're not persuaded by the moral argument, then just look at the financial side of it. We are, yeah, we are spending a lot of, of money on completely ineffective services. And we've got a lot of evidence that if you just get, get people out of poverty, better for everyone. So that's, that's the first thing. The other thing is that I think we should completely change the conversation around work. Uh, there was one poll done a few years ago by Gallup, and they asked 142,000 people in more than 100 countries, do you even like your work? It turned out that only 30% of workers worldwide like their job. Now, there's another thing going on. Is This is what they found out in the UK, is that 37% of British workers have a job that doesn't even need to exist. That is a waste, and I don't hear any many politicians talking about that. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, we'll get back to our interview with Rutger Bregman in just a moment. But, you know, it is the beginning of the year and it is the perfect moment because you're sort of in this 
real swell of activity. You may or may not have made a financial resolution. Who knows? But you know that tax season is coming up and you know that your life is pretty complicated. And this is the perfect time to look at how you did last year in your investment life and determine whether you need to do something different this year. Enter our sponsor, Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Maybe you want to just get a little check on how you're doing. There's a free investment review. It helps you assess your accounts and your strategies, fees, and risk exposure. But maybe you just want to put your investment plan on autopilot, and you want to do so for a cheap annual fee. That is what this is about. When you are an investor, the most important thing that you can control is your cost. One of the reasons I'm so excited that Betterment is our sponsor is it is such a reasonable way to invest. So go check it out. Go to Betterment.com and hopefully save yourself a few shekels in the year ahead. Okay, let's get back to our interview with Rutger Bregman. Let's talk a little bit about some of the work ethic issues and the Mm -hmm. work week because there's a chapter in your book called the 15-hour work week and I have always been Mm -hmm. dismayed at how many people I know who like broadly are so psyched pound their chest about how they hammered out an 80-hour week or I worked 110 hours on this matter or I've billed this Mm -hmm. client for first of all when did working long and hard become better than having free time You'd be surprised that in the 1930s, one of the greatest economists who ever lived, John Maynard Keynes, predicted that we would be working just 15 hours a week in 2030. And he wasn't the only one. You know, many of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, economists, sociologists, you name it, all thought that we would be working less and less and less. Now, what went wrong? Since the 1980s, we've been working more and more and more. And I think there are basically two explanations. So the first one is consumerism. We keep on buying stuff we don't need to impress people we don't like. Uh, And the other one is, uh, as I've been talking about, the rise of jobs that don't need to exist. Uh, And this is especially dominant in the in the service sector. And it's and it's very important here to to get the definition right. So a BS job is a job that the person who has that job, him or herself, says, well, if I stop working, doesn't really matter. Mm. Um, It's very easy to find out. If your job matters, just go on strike, uh, see what happens. In the, in the book, I use the, the example of a strike of garbage men in New York in 1968. And an average city survives that for about a week. And then, you know, it's a complete disaster. The emergency state has to be declared. And then I just wondered, has it ever happened in all world history that the bankers went on strike? <laughs> and I found only one example. And this was in Ireland, 1970. And, uh, well, to be honest, uh, nothing much happened. Uh, what happens when the, when the bankers went on strike and everyone's like, uh, they were on strike? Yeah, well, it, it, it lasted for six months. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the economy just kept growing. And I, I think that we should also just really redefine work. I mean, if we would define work as doing something useful that we actually care about, then many people are not working at all. Right. Nowadays, work, the way we define it right now is just yeah, it's basically earning money. Before I let you go, and I know you're a busy dude, talk a little bit about why 
the idea of open borders is mm-hmm. or should be, you think, should be part of the utopian vision. Yeah, this is definitely the most radical idea in my book. So the, the, base, the basic idea of the book is that we need to think utopian again. You know, that real progress always starts with someone who is who comes up with crazy ideas. Uh, basic income is a pretty crazy idea. 15-hour work week is maybe even crazier. But open borders is definitely the most radical idea in the book. But it also s- starts with just one of the biggest injustices of our time, and that is the, the huge source of dim- discrimination that we that we call borders. And we know from a mountain of economic evidence that immigration is still the most powerful instrument we've got against global poverty, and that so many of the arguments that you hear against it are simply not true. You know, that they'll take our jobs, or that, um, I don't know, they'll they'll drive wages down, or they'll be lazy, blah, 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 blah. So I, I, I go over all those arguments in the book and, and try to show that we, we, we don't have to be as afraid. I mean, is the fear on the immigration side tied to not having a bigger vision as well, in definitely, your mind? Definitely. Yeah. If you have a strong sense of identity, if you know who you are and where you want to go, you'll be open to others. You won't worry about, you know, other cultural influence. You'll be interested in the rest of the world. But if you don't really know who you are, if you, you know, feel insecure, then sure, you're going to be afraid. And that I think that explains the xenophobia these days is that if you, yeah, if we don't really have a vision of where we want to go, if we don't have a strong sense of identity, well, sure, then there will be a lot of space for xenophobia. But I think that, for example, in Germany, Angela Merkel was a great example of how you can be patriotic and open to others at the same time. So what she said in, in German was, we're shuffling us. We can handle the uh, the refugee crisis because we're such a good country. You know, mm. we're rich, we're smart, we can do this. <laughs> I think that's the way to, to do it. You pitch this book and you say, okay, I'm going to write about utopia for realists. And it's mm. going to include this concept that's a little bit funky called universal basic income. I'm going to be talking about open borders, a 15 hour work week. What was the reaction that that you got from your colleagues and editors? What what was it a hard sell? What was really heartening to me is that especially young people, they're so fed up with all the old and boring political discussions about the left versus the right, blah, 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 blah. And what really excites me is that there are hundreds, thousands of people now around the globe that are saying, well, let's get up and do something. We've got an experiment that's with basic income that's starting in Finland, another big one in, in Canada. Five years ago, none of this was happening. Poke a hole in your thesis when when you look at it. What is it if you're going to be, you know, throw your realist hat on? Where yeah. do you see where do you see the the biggest pushback for you? Well, look, um, my book is a really evidence based book. Uh, but I can't pretend that we know enough already about basic income. So what I really like to see is more experiments in this direction. In which country do you think there is going to be like the early adopter? You know, what's funny is that people from the U.S. often say to me, oh, this is probably this is some European welfare plan. It's probably going to happen there first. But actually, it was Richard Nixon who almost implemented a modest basic income at the beginning of the 70s in the U.S. So Stand down. US Hold on become... a second. Richard Nixon, the first, yes. the earliest adopter of universal basic income? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the end of the 60s, almost everyone in the U.S. believed that some form of basic income was going to be implemented, you know, from the left to the right. Uh, the uh, the economist uh, Milton Friedman was in favor of it, but also a lot of economists on the left. And Richard Nixon just thought that, well, if, if everyone's into this, uh, let's do it. Let me be the president who makes uh, history. Uh, so his proposal for a basic income got through Congress twice. It was only when it hit the Senate floor uh, that, the, that the Democrats basically killed it. 
because they wanted a higher basic income. But I think it also shows you that if you really follow the news, then often you get the idea that there's not much possible. But if you zoom out a little bit, and that's, that's my task as a historian, uh, you'd be amazed at, at the things that, that can happen in, in such a short time. Before we let you go, here's your, your bookend for your earlier question, which is, uh, remember I said, what's your best financial decision? You said you bought the house. I know you're really young, so but what was your worst financial decision? Uh, let me think about that. Um, I, I went to university and I, I wanted to do become a PhD for uh, for a while and wasted a lot, a lot of time on that on that idea. Oh well, because, it seems like to me it's actually played out pretty well for you. It sounds it yeah. sounds you know you're doing all right, right? Rutger Bregman, he is the author of Utopia for Realists. Get this book because you'll learn about universal basic income. You'll learn about the argument for a 15-hour work week and why open borders could maybe give us a new vision. It's just so well-researched, well-written. It's a lot of good storytelling in there. And so I can tell that you are not just a journalist, but you're also a wonderful author and a historian and have some really terrific vision. So Rutger Bregman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Take care. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for the listener question of the week. This is the time I get to talk to you guys. So if you've got a financial question, something in your own life that's kind of driving you crazy, you want to be able to talk to someone who can give you an objective, unbiased opinion about what your next decision should be in your financial life. So we're those folks, me and Mark. All you have to do is send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Today, we've got Maria, who's on the line from Salt Lake City. And Maria, I am talking to you on a day where I feel like it might be colder in New York than Salt Lake. So what is the weather right there? It's about 25 degrees out, no wind, no, no precipitation. That sounds like a very good day to go skiing. And here it's frigid and in the single digits with our wind chill. So um, I'm coming to Salt Lake. I should have just done this live with you. Tell me what's on your <laughs> mind. How can I help you out today? So I have a question about a Roth IRA. Uh, my husband and I have both invested in Roth IRAs when we were younger, but then um, Many years ago, we reached the cap at which you can put money into a Roth IRA, and so we haven't had a chance to invest in them since. But this last year, I quit my full-time job to start a company, and so we miraculously find ourselves in the low-income bracket of being able to donate again. Okay. Um, uh, so what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, with it, while starting a company, I'm, I'm taking a significantly lesser income, and, you know, we're relying on, you know, having a savings padding and things like that. Is it always a good idea to invest in a Roth IRA if you have the money sitting in a liquid account or are there circumstances where you should lay off? Well, here's what I would say. I wouldn't want you to be pulling money out of your emergency reserve fund to fund a Roth. I really wouldn't because the whole point of the emergency reserve is that it's there for an emergency. If, however, let's just say that you um, had a, a general investment account, just had a little side slush fund. Hey, we bought some stocks in this account and things are good. Well, that I might do. I might say, take some money out of a, an investment account, sell whatever you have, hopefully at a profit or maybe even a loss, depending on your tax situation, and use that to fund the Roth. Then I would be more inclined to be okay with that. But I really, I'm one of the most boring people when it comes to financial 
decisions like this, I do believe that you don't mess around with your emergency reserve fund. So is the money that you have in cash really your emergency reserve fund? Is it a surplus? What is it that you have? So we have about 100000 in various places. That's kind of our... Um it's just what's not in retirement investments. Okay, well, do you have an an account that you could access where you could sell a winner against a loser or or make, you know, again, maybe this is a good year actually to sell something because you're in a lower tax bracket. I don't know. In that case, if you've got 100 grand, I don't see why there would be any problem. You're under the age of 50? Yes. Then, I, then yeah, I would take 5,500 from some of that money and put it into a Roth. Absolutely would. Okay. Unless you have some, you know, big, huge need for that. Yeah, go ahead and do it. Why not? And that money has already been taxed. It's really it's a better time to do it. And as you said, you know, hopefully your business builds up. You may never have the chance to be doing this again next year. So you might as well do it this year. Yeah, we think that this year and next year may be our only opportunity to do it again. <laughs> I, I say go for it. And then, and then, um, by the way, and then I hope that you can never do it again because that will yeah. mean you're making so much money. So good question. Yeah, fund it and uh, try to stay tax neutral if you can, or at least use the tax law to your advantage. Remember, no change in capital gains rates in this new tax plan. So top rate is still 23.8%. I don't know how much your spouse makes, but you know if you're in that top bracket, there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe you can sell a loser versus a winner, but get that money funded and rock and roll. Okay, thanks. All right, take care. Good luck. Bye. Well, that's our show. Thank you so much to our guest, Rutger Bregman, and our caller, Maria. If you have a financial question or you just want to weigh in on a particular topic, shoot us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. We release new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday, but you know what? Make it easy for yourself. Download the show anywhere you can subscribe to it. Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or you can just go to our website, jillonmoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Better Off is distributed by Cadence 13. Our executive producer is Mark Talercio, and we're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. See you next week.